Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart, episode 139. I'm your host, Derek Moore. And today, well, we're going to be talking a little bit more about inflation. And the reason why I'm going to be talking about is there's been a lot of, I don't want to call it misinformation, but misunderstanding about what happens when, let's say, higher inflation recedes. And I think it's worth talking about, and I think it's it's somewhat important. Also in the news uh, with inflation this week, Twitter founder Jack Dorsey, I think he also, is he the founder of Square? If he wasn't the founder of Square, he certainly is, wasn't he like dual CEO? Anyway, it doesn't matter. So he said that uh, hyperinflation is coming and hyperinflation is coming not only to you know some parts of the world, but it's also coming to places like the US and I assume he meant Europe. And I uh, believe, you know, his take is, well, that means crypto. I think that's what it said in the article. So don't don't quote me on that directly. But so let's talk a little more about hyperinflation and maybe some of the the regimes that we saw hyperinflation in. And then finally, uh, the GDP now forecast. I want to talk about this. So I follow the Atlanta Fed GDP model. It is a now cast, which means every bit of data that comes in, they forecast it. And it gets more and more accurate the closest it comes to the actual release of GDP. We have a release of GDP out next week uh, or next week or the following week. Uh, no, should be next week. So I want to talk about that. And uh, since we have no advertisers by choice, let's just get to it. The first thing I want to really get around is this idea about inflation and what no one is really talking about, and I, it's not that they don't understand it, it's just I, I keep hearing that, you know, when will prices go back down or when, when inflation normalizes, we'll have a, a rescission in, in prices. But here's the thing, except for periods where we have deflation. So inflation is when prices rise and prices, when we say prices, we mean the CPI, the Consumer Price Index which is a basket of goods. Think of it like a shopping cart or a, you know, one of those handheld baskets you carry around the store. And imagine going around the store and, and you put a car in there, you put some cheese in there, some soup, steak, fish, you know, any, uh, a cell phone. And it, it kind of sounds ridiculous, right? But you put all those things in the basket and then, and then they weight the basket, not like how much does it weigh, just Obviously, you know, people aren't buying, spending 70% of their budgets on soup, at least not most people, but they sort of weight those items based upon household expenditures. And there's a whole methodology to that that, uh, that sort of informs that. In fact, I think next year, I mentioned this on a podcast a few weeks ago, they're going to be changing the weights to, I believe it's a 2019-2020 uh, consumer expenditure data. But the CPI, and we say inflation, and we talk about prices, we say all this stuff, is it going up or down? And so that's measured. And, and there's a couple of ways they do it. One is they, they look at just raw price changes. I mean, what did it, price, what did it cost last year? What does it cost this year? Not, not all these, but some items have what's called a hedonic adjustment. Hedonic adjustments are where they look at quality. They look at improvements. So uh, I think cell phones are one of the things they hedonically adjust. So last year's iPhone, if it was $1,000, this year's is 1200 You say, well, it went up 
yes, but what if it's faster, uh, has more features, better camera, better chip, longer battery life? All of those things are sort of taken into account. And so you, even though price goes up, for some items, not all, but for some, they are hedonically adjusted. And so when we say the rate of inflation, we're saying, what was the basket last quarter? What was it last month? And then what's it this month? When the data gets released, you see month over month, meaning we are in October now. And so when, uh, uh, let's say, when October's data is released in November, usually around the 13th, 14th, 15th of the month, somewhere around there, what they do is they take uh, whatever it is in September, they look at October, that gets released in November, and they look at a month over month. Then they go back and they, they look at year over year. So they'll look November of 21 to November of 2020, and they'll look at the year over year change. And you keep doing that, but in the end, the yearly CPI is based upon, let's say, in this case, the end of 2020, the, the CPI, the index, what, is, what happens to the basket of goods. And then they look at the end of the year, meaning 2021, and they look at the change. So this is kind of important data. But the thing that gets lost on this is I hear a lot of people saying, okay, well, you know, inflation right now through half the year of 2021 was around 4.8%. We know month over month, year over year recently, they've been about five and a half, five point six 5.6%, you know, depend, depending upon, you know, which one you're looking at. And of course there is uh, CPI and then the core CPI, which excludes food and energy. Why exclude food and energy? Because those things normally are volatile, quote unquote, and so you, you take those out. But when we look at the, the CPI data, and again, going back to this idea that people say, well, okay, well, if, if, if inflation, let's say it stops being 5.5%, it goes back to being 2%. Remember, the Fed had this 2% inflation target for many years. Many years, it sort of never quite averaged that over longer periods of time. But people say, okay, well, if it goes from five and a half to two and a half, prices come down. And that's actually not correct. The only time prices recede is if you have deflation, meaning a drop in prices. And what people are mistaking here with deflation, um, between deflation and a drop in the rise of inflation, is that inflation's still rising, but it's not rising as much. And so you have a compounding effect. And so one of the things I did, I went back and I looked, I pulled some data and I pulled it from 1970. Now the 1970s, we actually, and into early 1980s, we had, we had high inflation. And for many of us who remember that, remember that being a big deal. In fact, they had the misery index during the Carter administration where you took the unemployment rate plus the uh, inflation rate you combine the two and that got the misery index, meaning, hey, I'm out of work and stuff is costing more money. So I go back and I look at the data and just to give you an idea of how bad inflation was in the late 70s, I'm looking now and 1970, for example, was 5.8%, but that's not the half of it. Uh, it 4.3, 3.3, 6.2 goes to 11.10% inflation in 1974, 9.1, 5.7, 6.5. 7.6, there are not too many more of these, stay with me here, 79, 11.3. And then 
1980, 13.5% inflation. In 1981, 10.3%. And finally, 82, 6.1%. Now, it's not to say that we didn't see you know, higher than we've seen. In fact, you know, 1989, we had 4.8. But I bring this up because prices never really drop. And what's interesting is I went back and I said, in other words, when I say they don't drop, it means once prices have gone up, measured by the CPI, you really don't get deflation unless you have, you know, I'm I'm just looking and, and looking back at my numbers here. Uh, 2009, we have negative 0.4% inflation. Of course, that was during the financial crisis. And the, the bit of data I'm looking at, I think you have to go back to the, the Great De- Well, I shouldn't say that. I know in the Great Depression in the 1929, early 1930s, you had uh, deflation. And it took many years to for that economy to come back. But deflation in a over a full year is pretty rare. And in fact, I've just told you since 1970, which surprisingly is now, what is that, 34? That's uh, 51 years of data. Of course, we haven't closed out 2021 yet. We've only seen one instance of a full year where CPI was lower for the full year. And so what I mean here is that even if inflation, let's say, goes back down, you've already increase the the CPI index, meaning the prices have already moved. And now, even if you get, let's say, 1% inflation over the next two years, that 1% is still on the old compounded number. It's the same theory, right? If you have $100,000 invested in the market and you make 10%, great. Now you have $110,000. If you make 10% again, you don't make 10,000. You make 10% on $110,000, which is 11,000. Kind of go where I'm going, see where I'm going here. And just for kicks and uh, and grins, what I did was I looked at a hypothetical. I, I said, let's what if the basket cost $100 in 1969 and I used the uh, the actual I compounded using the the inflation numbers. Well, from 1969 through uh, mid-year in 2021, that $100 basket of goods, that shopping cart, would be about $737 and change. Okay. So prices have gone up seven times in, we'll call it, you know, 50, 50 and a half years, 51-ish years, right? Okay. But what if from that 1970 period through, let's say, 1982, what would happen if instead of all those numbers that I rattled off to you, that I just made inflation 2.5%? Well, believe it or not, not only would inflation not be quite as high on a compounded basis, right, the ending cost of the basket, it would be ha- almost pretty much a little more than half the basket. In other words, I said $737 was the basket at the end of those years. But if I actually, and this is just hypothetical, if I put in 2.5% instead of all the ones I rattled off, uh, it would be $387 for the price for the basket. So you see that even though inflation came down, even though inflation came down, prices still rose and prices compound on one another. And so I bring that up because I do hear people missing that. I feel like it's a, it's a point that a, a lot of folks don't quite grasp of this compounding. 
Uh, I do hear people say, well, you know, prices will come down once inflation slows. You know, you would have to have a number of years, successive years, with larger deflation to ever sort of really go back down. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing wages come up. Because if, if wages stay where they are and inflation keeps going higher, well, what happens? On a real purchasing power basis, based, you know, basically saying, what is your purchasing power after your account for inflation? Purchasing power would continue to go down and down and down. So it sort of makes sense that wages would, would go up uh, certainly a little bit. So hopefully that was helpful. Now, with regard to Jack Dorsey's comment about hyperinflation coming, uh, at my desk here where I do a podcast and I do my trading and, and you know, uh, watching uh, accounts and managing money and all that stuff, I keep a, uh, uh, someone had given me this as a gift. I have a $100 trillion uh, bill. And it's not from the U.S., but it's the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe had hyperinflation. I'm talking, you know, wheelbarrows full of cash to get a loaf of bread type inflation. And that's one of the, the best examples of hyperinflation in a, in a country where the currency really got just debased, meaning, you know, sort of lost, uh, lost uh, confidence, let's say. Let's say that. And so uh, the other examples are Weimar Republic in Germany, where they would, uh, at least the stories were, they would uh, wallpaper their, their homes with their, uh, their Weimar or their marks, as opposed to using it, because it was better served uh, as wallpaper. But is Jack Dorsey correct? Um, there have been a lot of people calling for hyperinflation for many years due to the, the growing national debt, the idea of the Fed increasing the money supply. A lot of people believe interest rates have been held low for too, too low for too long. Um, hyperinflation is when you see, I mean, really, really accelerating inflation. And so it's kind of one of those things you don't want to hold. When you see hyperinflation, you don't want to keep, you don't want to have money in your hands because every second it's in your hands, it's losing more and more value. And so when you have that type of inflation, what happens is whatever the currency is, the local currency, whether it's Zimbabwe dollars or US dollars or anything like that, uh, there is a loss of confidence in the currency, the, the, the feeling that the currency is going to continue to lose value and by value meaning its equivalency to other currencies. It's, uh, its exchange rate, and it's going to lose value at an ever-increasing rate. Uh, and, the, and the belief of that causes people to, uh, you know, to not want it or, or to, to sort of exchange it. And people, you know, they don't want to hold it. They, they want to get rid of that. And ideally, what they want to do is they want to get out of their own currency that's suffering the hyperinflation and you know, get to U.S. dollars or uh, I was going to date myself by saying, you know, German marks or something like that. But um, so the, I think the thing with hyperinflation too is that people see, you know, people don't notice necessarily the creeping inflation. Uh, 
But hyperinflation is where everybody sees it. It's a big problem. And, you know, I mean, a lot of this, uh, I'll, I'll probably, you know, knock it in. Maybe I'll do another episode. Or have I done an episode? If I've done an episode, I'll link to it. But I think that uh, maybe I'll, I'll hold off and really getting into hyperinflation because it, it's a fascinating subject and the causes of it and what you do. Typically, I think uh, was it Chile, uh, they had inflation. I believe it was Chile. Um, but And really you have to form what they, what they call as a currency board and they try and fix an exchange rate of one currency into something like U.S. dollars and guarantee the exchange rate. So there's, there's a lot to talk about there, but I want to move on for now. So is Jack Dorsey right? I, I don't know. I mean, people have been calling for hyperinflation for many years, but uh, I don't know what his forecasting ability is. So let's transition to our next topic, which is GDP now. One of the things I watch a lot is the Atlanta Fed. And, and remember, there's all these different regional Federal Reserve, uh, banks of the Federal Reserve system. You have the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, Cleveland, San Francisco. Uh, we don't have an we don't have one in Arizona yet. I think I'd like to see that maybe a, a Scottsdale or a Phoenix uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Scottsdale, Federal Reserve Bank of Phoenix would be fine, or Tucson, anywhere. Put it in Flagstaff. Um, I'm not sure when the last time they've actually created another one. I don't believe they have. But back to the topic, GDP now is a now cast. And so what happens is people are, you hear the banks, uh, I mentioned it with Jay Pestricelli, I think it was last week that Morgan Stanley had dropped their Q3 GDP estimate down to, I think it was 2.9%. And that caused quite a stir on the street. But you have these, what they call blue chip consensus estimates for GDP. These are analysts, these are economist or, uh, you know, a financial analyst working at banks or brokerage firms on Wall Street or off Wall Street, but, you know, sort of the vernacular still, uh, we, we call them Wall Street banks. And the blue chip consensus, what it does is comes out with the range of the top 10, the bottom 10, and then the average uh, forecast for GDP. And it's interesting, and, and this will will be an interesting time to look at this now cast is because the blue chip consensus, which started out above 7%, is down now to, I'd say, about 3.8% or something like that. But at the same time, the Atlanta Fed now cast hit a low of 0.5% for, for uh, now casted GDP growth of 0.5% in Q3 of 21. It has one more now cast. I believe that's on the 29th of October. Actually, sorry, the 27th of October. And that will take in uh, something where you've got, what is that, durable, advanced durable orders. And there's some in inventory data and things like that uh, that will be watched. So what is this GDP now, GDP now, now cast, GDP forecast? Well, what it does is if you can imagine that the GDP forecast is made up of all these different components. And when you think about the components, it's things like construction spending, the manuf ISM manufacturing index, international trade, you know, what is there, what's the export versus import? Uh, we have been a net importing country. And so uh, GDP is, you know, government, uh, 
spending goes in there. Uh, you've got individual spending. You've got company, you know, company spending. But you also have uh, imports minus exports, and we have a trade deficit. Now, on its on its face, trade deficits aren't necessarily bad. If we can get things that are better, cheaper, faster, um, we can use our resources on things that we can make more efficiently. Nothing necessarily bad about that. But setting that aside, when you look at GDP, um, that trade does uh, you know come into play, and especially given the container shipping issues and the logistics, we've seen our our trade deficit grow of of late. But then we have things like the employment situation, uh, housing starts, personal income, you know, any number of these things. What happens is every t- they start out with their, uh, their now cast for a quarter, and they start out with whatever data gets released. So imagine you have one piece of the puzzle, and then you update your, your now cast, and then you get another piece of the puzzle. And, and you update that now cast. And sometimes you get, for example, you might get ISM manufacturing or something else multiple times, you know, over once a month for a while. And so every time that piece comes in, you're updating your forecast. So imagine you've got something that you're molding and you're not really, it's not a finished product, but every bit of data that comes in, you're adjusting this forecast. So the now cast I've been fascinated with it and I really watch it. And the reason why I do is I'm interested as each of these pieces come in, uh, there is no sort of massaging of, of the data. There's no interpretation of it. Now, behind the scenes, I believe they, they've created a, a model of how this data comes in and how it's affected in their nowcast forecast. But you have analysts and the nowcast it's been pretty close. It has an absolute error of about 0.8% uh, or 0.8, I think. And what happens is the closer and closer you get to the actual release date of the first, so there'll be the first estimate of Q3 GDP. The closer you get to that actual estimate, uh, the more reliable, let's say, the Atlanta Fed GDP now uh, forecast is or the now cast. Remember, it's not a forecast, it's a now cast, meaning right now, what do we have? What's the data we have? We're not going to make any changes. We get another piece of data and then we make the update again. So I'll put a link in the show notes to this, but I, I think it's worth watching. And of note, especially this one is, you know, the, the GDP now cast for Q3, and that is 0.5%. And you know, if we came in at 0.5%, that would be a big miss on the consensus, quote unquote, blue chip estimates on GDP. Now, they could still revise those as they're, they're coming in. But, um, and by the way, this, this is not the only nowcast. Uh, they're, I think the New York Fed, either they did one or they still do one. I, I can't remember. I tend to follow this one. There is an inflation nowcast. That's done by the Cleveland Fed. I do follow that as well. I'll put a link in the show notes to that one as well. But, uh, uh, but anyway, if you want to play armchair, armchair economist and you want to actually follow the GDP numbers, this is a, uh, a good place to start. And so the big uh, sort of the payoff on this one is, as I said, the last estimate 
the final nowcast for Q3 GDP will be the 27th of October, and that will include advanced durable manufacturing, uh, which is could be interesting. I think that uh, that's a Census Bureau item, I believe, and and that includes things like cars and autos. I guess cars and autos are the same. Cars and trucks. So, uh, you know, and then they wash machines, dryers, all that type of stuff. I think we've seen that some factories, due to the chip shortage, have had their output cut. Now, the question is, did they cut the output on the stuff that's cheaper? You know, they're still pumping out thousands and thousands of, you know, $80,000 Ford Raptors or, you know, that type of deal. So we don't know that yet. All right. So I think we covered some really good ground on this. Uh, I still, by the way, we have yet to get a listener from the country of uh, Gibraltar. Gibraltar. There we go. As I said, if, uh, if you're a listener from Gibraltar, not just, you know, putting your IP there, uh, I will send you sign a book and send it out. Uh, but it's got to go to a, a, Gibralt- a Gibraltian address. I apologize to the people there if I'm mispronouncing any of this. And I appreciate all the, the new listeners who have come in recently. We've seen uh, our listenership grow. We continue to see more and more countries uh, show up in the listeners. And uh, so appreciate that. And by the way, continue to, to send notes, send emails, Derek, D-E-R-E-K dot more, M-O-O-R-E, at Zega, Z-E-G-A, financial.com and give me if you have an idea for a guest or if you somebody you want to see or a topic because often these topics and these shows are designed based upon listener feedback and instead of rating review and uh, and starring of course you can do all that you know it'd be nice to get more five-star reviews so don't don't review if it's not going to be five stars Uh, but instead of wasting time doing that just go ahead and click a link and forward it on to someone who might appreciate these broadcasts We'll be back next week, most likely with my semi-permanent co-host, Jay Pestercelli, or maybe another guest. Uh, We've got a couple guests who I'm working on and talking with about joining the program. And so look for those in the future as well. All right, everyone. Hope you have a good week. uh, We'll talk to you soon.